um, the idea is that you have an activity with supervision and that supervision decreases or at some point you decide that the supervision is not necessary anymore. And the driver's license is a pretty good example. And uh, at first you start learning to drive, there would be options for the uh, the drive the instructor to actually to have uh, use their own brakes to take over right away. And then the critical next step is uh, not to be present. And then um, then you're allowed to do that by yourself. So we have enough faith in your skills and your adaptability that you are ready. So which is, means that's an entrustment decision. Hi, my name is Lizzie. And my name is Julia, and we're both internal medicine residents. And you're listening to Review of Systems, the podcast that explores the past, present, and future of medical education through conversations with experts and learners alike. As a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast may not be those of the hosts or the institutions that we work for. In today's episode, we talk to Ole Tenkate about medical education in the Netherlands and competency-based assessment. Ole Tenkate is an emeritus professor of medical education at the University Medical Center Utrecht in the Netherlands and adjunct professor of medicine at UCSF. With a background of undergraduate medical training and a PhD in social sciences, he has four decades of experience at the universities of Amsterdam and Utrecht with curriculum innovation, educational research, and faculty development in the health professions domain. One of his interests is competency-based education in the health professions and specifically in the application of entrustable professional activities and entrustment decision-making. Okay, good. So uh, well, I have a little bit of an unusual, probably unusual career. There's not very many people who did that. In I, I finished high school in 1972. Um, we That is the first year that the Netherlands had introduced a lottery system for entry into medical school. And I didn't get into school. So what I did is I um, spent that year as an exchange student in a different country, which happened to be in a small town called Aberdeen, South Dakota. So that's where I spent a year uh, and uh, I had lots of fun. And I then, so after that year, I went to medical school. I uh, just was a regular medical student, not, not special, but I was already somewhat interested in education. I would now qualify that as a very traditional old fashioned school. And we as students were interested to feed back to the school how we actually experienced that education. The evaluations were not common, they were not done. So the first, when I was a fourth year medical student, I had a team of uh, peer students. And uh, what was very new at that time was multiple choice questions with um, how do you call them? Scrap cards. So uh, you know those cards that you have to uh, scrape for for uh, A, B, C, or D or something. Oh, we yeah, had to, yeah. Multiple. So guys, I yeah. I secured a whole package of them, and then I made a, a questionnaire, and then I distributed among the peer students. Uh, the my whole class was over two hundred people, uh, and then asked them to fill out um, uh, that card for multiple choice question in an evaluation, and then add. Think so. I, so I processed all that. So that was a little bit my 
my first experiences with doing a small kind of quantitative education research project mm -hmm. like a medical student and we did that and we have as a report and i kind of like that and then when i um i had completed all my theoretical studies and yeah so that we don't have that structure anymore in the netherlands but i had started with some clinical education but uh, i never i so i had a, a degree that we would now call a master's degree in medicine uh, which is now very common in the netherlands but at that time yeah where had a different name but that was it, basically it and i didn't proceed to get a license to practice because i was able there were all sorts of reasons but there was all i was also able to have a part-time job as an educational developer at our at my school because they had big plans for a complete overhaul of the whole curriculum and they needed assistance uh, it, basically education interested people so i applied for that and i said look this is the report i we recently made uh, just two years ago so would you be interested in me knowing that i've done this this work already and so i was directly accepted and i actually never left that's that's basically what happened so it was a part-time job but i really liked it and then we had really big curriculum developments and i i remained that i i organized something that at that time you could individually organize a phd track look for supervisors and that's what i did in medical education and uh, so i uh, had my phd degree in 1986 and then we had more development curriculum development all sorts of faculty development educational research all sorts of things that started up at the university of amsterdam and that was actually observed by other schools so I was called actually from Utrecht University. Would you be willing to come? We're looking for someone to fill a position of professor of medical education. So that was in 1999. So then I made that big step from Amsterdam to Utrecht, which geographically is only half an hour drive. But in the Netherlands, it, that's a big distance. <laughs> We're a small country. So I, uh, from then on, actually, I I did all sorts of developmental work. I set up a, a center for research and development of medical education. Started a PhD program with many PhD students. Uh, we did international work. We did uh, other curriculum development work. Um, we did um, so. I set up uh, international faculty development initiatives a program that we call imex international medical educators exchange with five under other universities in the world uh, so we had all sorts of exchanges and um, and then i got involved in postgraduate uh, training on a national level um, advising our central college of medical specialties about how they could adapt postgraduate training um so much of that happened i would say in the past 15 years and and i got acquainted with people in california so we set up a collaborative doctoral program for students interested in doctoral research uh, and a doctoral degree in medical education or health professions education broadly and that's what we did so and it still works so i still have very regularly meetings with the californian people and visit california as a 
adjunct professor at the at UCSF. California is not a bad place to come and visit from time to time. I would say, out of if you're going to come to the states, California is pretty nice. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got in, yeah, got in love with uh, San Francisco. One thing that you said kind of uh, brought up a question for me. I am more, much more familiar with how the structure of getting into medical school is in the United States, and you brought up that there's a lottery system in the Netherlands. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I recently published that on that in, in the journal Graduate Medical Education. If you're interested, I can send you that. But um, there is a big debate in the Netherlands about that whole issue of lottery. So basically, what happened in the 1960s is uh, a very simple uh, procedure. Well, it, it, it generated discussions at, at all levels of society, parliaments, and so and, and the government too. But they they faced the situation that there were increasing numbers of medical students wanting to go to medical school, but not as many, I would say, predicted places for physicians to work, uh, either being in postgraduate training or directly going to general practice in the 1960s. And they, they started a discussion, how do we limit that number? Uh, because we it, it is very expensive to educate all those medical students and we need a mechanism to actually limit that. And they said at that moment, we don't have reason to expect that suddenly, because now the numbers don't uh, fit anymore, that suddenly the the students don't wouldn't qualify. But we're not afraid that we would have students that are not qualified to go to medical school, but it's just the the big the number is just too large. So some uh, smart people actually says, well, why don't we start something like a lottery, uh, a lottery system to say, well, if we can't make a difference between those people uh, who would be better uh, or would have more right to go to medical school, why don't we just have a, a lottery system, which is kind of fair for everyone? And if you don't make it, you know, yeah, that's too bad. Uh, so and we're not forcing all those schools to set up their own selection systems. And so there's not no need for that. So that was accepted was a little bit of um, a waiting in that system. The waiting was we have a, a, a national high school examination. So if you score very highly on that, you were uh, allowed to enter the lottery three times over the summer. And if you have a low score, but you have passed it, you would be eligible to have it only once. So you were either in the group of once or twice or three times in the lottery. And that uh, that worked actually very well. It worked well from 1972, actually, um, with a little bit of adaptation in the first years, but that until about the end of the 90s. And... And you could just expect that would happen one day, one day when a very bright high school student with um, very vocal parents would say, I'm very good. So I've been out of, I didn't, I wasn't picked in that lottery system and I'm protesting against the lottery system. And suddenly people started to think differently about that lottery, about to say, well, it's not fair. We should be. Um, we should have right to get into medical school, and and that those that fairness idea uh, began to have people against the whole lottery system. So that took about ten years, and then it was abandoned. And all schools were are now selecting their own students, 
uh, with some restrictions of what they can use as criteria. But um, at this moment, the, the uh, discussion comes back because people are really seeing that uh, individual selections for medical schools takes a lot of energy and it doesn't really make much of a difference in, in getting better students in your school. So, um, and I'm, I have always been a proponent of the lottery system. It's not very sympathetic. I, I completely understand those people who are like declined through a lottery system don't f find that very difficult to accept. Um, but from a psychometric perspective, I think there's much to say for a lottery system. And so, uh, there's now discussions coming back and chances are that next year lottery will be allowed again. It was actually forbidden for about 10 years and now it's coming back because people find that it probably would help to have uh, an, an increased diversity of medical students. Uh, there is some suggestion that it has decreased the diversity of students. Uh, the, the, the selection system were compared to the lottery system. We don't really know if it's difficult to uh, exactly pinpoint that, but the, the impression is that it, it didn't do well in that respect. No, yeah, I appreciate you talking to that. And when you were speaking about it, the big thing in my head was thinking about how that could help with diversity, equity, and inclusion within medical education, because that's obviously something that we are not very good at right now and we need to get better at. So I think it's an interesting model. Um, I guess, are there any like drawbacks to it that you see? I don't see too many drawbacks actually. And I'm, I'm, and I'm pretty different from many other people who keep saying it's, it's fairer to have a, like a selection system than, than a lottery system, but I'm not convinced about that fairness at all, actually. Uh, so I, I yeah, there are some, and I actually think if you, so what happens now in the Netherlands is there are selection systems, then there are small companies that start uh, offering courses and um, ask for big money to do that course. We'll say, we'll target that course at University of Utrecht or Amsterdam or Maastricht or Groningen, and, and we'll prepare you well, you have more chances to get into it, which actually leads to like a sort of rat race that people who do not take those courses, those commercial courses basically will have lower chance, which is, I think it's not always true even, but, um, but that's a suggestion. So people are making money saying that you have better chances to get into medical school. But if you, if you look at the whole, there's no increase in numbers of places in medical school and so it's very it's getting more and more it's very competitive it has become very competitive in the lottery the lottery time well there was no com no true competition actually mm -hmm. that all sounds very familiar as people that have applied to medical school in the united states where there's all these extra companies to help with test prep and cost a lot of money and puts other people at a disadvantage if they don't have that money. Exactly. Um, yeah. Are there other countries that do this lottery system or is that something specific? I think we're, we're pretty, uh, we have been pretty unique. And and the idea is actually, it was, so it was abandoned only after three decades or actually two decades, two, two and a half decades. Uh, but so we have worked with that so long for decades actually and there was no, nobody actually questioned that in the Netherlands. This was how it was. 
even though other countries did not have that. I mean, other countries have uh, very competitive entry exams, but uh, but I think we have a pretty selective secondary school system. So secondary school, you have to really yeah do pretty well because you you need uh, not all sorts of secondary schools can lead to medical school. So you have to have a package with biology and physics and some some kind of those um, STEM sort of packages. Uh, and and you have to have that, which actually limit the number from secondary school people who can go to medical school. But that is, system in itself is already pretty selective. And yeah, so we don't we don't really think that those people who are eligible because of their secondary school um, are very different in in their suitability for medical school. So if you do selection, it is it is just because you don't you cannot accept everyone and then starting to suggest that some people are not suitable where it's difficult to really maintain that. So, okay. yeah, yeah, there's arguments for it. It'd be uh, People find it odd and I, I can't think of very strong arguments against it. Yeah. Well, yeah, very interesting. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> yeah. Um, we know you're really well known for competency-based assessments and all your research that has gone into that. And we were just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to be interested in this model and how you think this could be implemented. Uh, yes, and and again, uh, I have to limit myself a little bit just because <laughs> this is uh, things that I could talk for hours to. So when I uh, started working at the University of Utrecht, uh, one of the persons that I knew quite well, actually, from the University of Amsterdam, where I came from, became the the, uh, the chair of the, uh, the president of the of the Central College of Medical Specialties in the Netherlands, and they started saying we need to do something about the quality of postgraduate training in the Netherlands. We we think it could be done better, and we need some people to think along with us. So I was invited to do that with some other people from other universities. And so we had some brainstorm sessions. We we uh, actually talked with a with a larger group of postgraduate program directors, and and then they said, "Well, we need objectives for our training." And so we had one group of objectives, and I was leading another group on assessment. And then then I said to them, "Wait, well, if we think about assessment, we need to know what is what is the target of the assessment. I mean, what are the objectives?" So we. I, I can't talk about assessment without also saying something about the objectives of training. So how do we do that? So, and then I was, I happened to be at a conference and I met somebody called Jason Frank, who was actually instrumental in Canada in uh, creating the uh, Ken Metz, uh, Ken Metz competency model there. I heard him talk and I said to him, what if I go back to the Netherlands and suggest you come over and, uh, give a little bit of this explanation for our group because i don't think we need to re reinvent the wheel in the netherlands so i i came back and he was invited and he gave that talk and he was and everybody actually was convinced so uh that was the start of uh, competency-based education in the netherlands we adopted that system i actually personally translated the system in a dutch in dutch like phrasings and and and, and dutch explanations how to do that and so uh, I started doing that, uh, and I was aware of some criticism a little bit that started to arise in the 
in the first decade of this century, and um, and then and some in some other domains, people were also saying, well, competency-based education didn't bring us very much yet. So I kept thinking, how can we make sure that competency-based education will be a success in in the Netherlands and just in general, maybe? And then um, I had a few like light bulb moments. And one was um, a talk with our CEO from the University Medical Center. He said, well, the competency-based education, I know that from nursing because they do competency-based education. They are no, they, they have established their schools. They have a lot of classroom teaching and they have very detailed um, competency frameworks and, and, and detailed, actually very extensive descriptions. Um, but the funny thing is now they are, once they come into the hospital, they they have difficulty to calculate the drips for an IV. Or um, so, and and he was complaining actually about that new educational model of the nurses. And, and, and to me, that was a paradox. So if you are really competency-based and you pretend that you have everything written down, uh, in the details, but and then you then and you have difficulty to actually apply that in practice, or 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 there is a mismatch between those competencies that you apparently have. The, the school says they have that, but in practice they they find so there we need something in between. So, and then I had another light bulb moment, and I'll connect those two. Uh, the other light bulb moment was when I actually had a meeting with one of our internists and was in her office and and then a resident came in and he had a question and then she sent him back to the patient and after he left the room she said to me I know this resident I know I can trust him this resident with a specific task and that's those two things that stuck together with me and then I I started thinking for months and months actually we need something that actually reflects this. But this is the essence of, of healthcare education. So we need that people are trusted to do something in practice. And those that that idea of entrustment of practical activities led to the idea of entrustable professional activities. So, uh, and you can find the definition. So, um, and a funny story is actually also that I thought, why don't we, at, why don't we think of a word for it? So those activities are are to be trusted. So why don't we call them entrustable activities? Uh, that was a, that was the very first start. But then more publications came, and we 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 published something in in academic medicine, and that really um, suddenly some many people actually got became interested, and now it's a huge. I would say a, a wave of. Um, yeah, of components of postgraduate training that's accepted in in many countries. So my own country, all postgraduate programs use EPAs now. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, are you able to break down a little bit of like what an example of an EPA is and how that works practically? Is it something where uh, reviewers get a list of them and then kind of go through um, I think that would be helpful to hear a little bit more of how it practically plays out. Um, the idea is that you 
have, have an activity with supervision and that supervision decreases or at some point you decide that the supervision is not necessary anymore. And the driver's license is a pretty good example. So uh, you you at 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 you as you start learning to drive, and uh, at first, um, if you have a in in most driving uh, edu article training cars, there would be options for the uh, the drive the instructor to actually to have uh, use their own brakes and uh, so actually to do things. Uh, to take over right away. So that is what we sometimes call in APA terminology, it's level two uh, of um, of supervision. So level one would be that a learner is allowed to be in, this, in the healthcare space, but not allowed to practice. Level two would be uh, with only direct supervision. And there's even sub layers that we sometimes use to A and to B. To A would be that you do things together with, with, with a supervisor. Uh, or you would be observed and just do all, everything alone, but there must be somebody watching you. And then the critical next step is uh, not to be present. Now, in, in the case of driving, um, there's no difference between level three and level four. So either there is a, a structure in the car or not, uh, and then, um, then you're allowed to do that by yourself. But the idea is that there must be enough experience that the driver's instructor would say you're ready for an exam and then you'll need to do something like on a with direct observation by uh, an external examiner uh, you'll probably need to do in most countries you would have to do a written test too but if you all pass that well uh, people should say we're now confident that you can do this and i usually add to that if we in the netherlands would say you have now earned your driver's license you are eligible to drive wherever uh, and you have not we've not observed you to driving in the most critical circumstances or not to have you drive through the um, the canal tunnel to uh, the, the UK for instance where you suddenly have to drive at the left side of the road uh, but you're yeah you're allowed to do that so we have enough faith in your skills and your adaptability that you are ready so which is means that's an entrustment decision entrustment decision by definition means that uh, super, that not everything has been observed but there's enough observed that we have we can express our trust in in the person to do this by by themselves now yeah i would say even in our program i've kind of seen this play out from lizzie's a cohort of students a year ahead of me for like procedural training they like have to do a certain number and then they're deemed like competent whereas with my year they tried to do this more of like a competency based assessment where someone had to like watch you and like see how you were doing and i see it playing out really nicely in procedures but i i'm glad you spoke to the the part about how it could play out in other things because like managing a patient with really complicated heart failure like at what point do you entrust your learners in that and i guess my kind of my biggest question is is how do you train people to be able to deem somebody competent or not competent? Because I feel like there's so much variability, even in procedure training. I've had one person be like, oh yeah, you can do these by yourself. And then someone else says, oh no, you still need to be like watched. And I guess, I think that could get very nuanced in some of clinical medicine. 
Yeah, so uh, it's a very good question. So there's there's different sources of variation. And one source of variation is is the uh, supervisor. And some supervisors are different than other supervisors. That's definitely true. If we'll, we think of individual individual supervisors, they can make a decision for what to, so how much autonomy you can have now or tomorrow or, or that those decisions depends on the context, other things too, but they also are made by individual supervisors. Now you have a clinical competency committee who makes the big decisions about you. So, and here's where information of different supervisors must be merged. So if if two would not agree on the level of autonomy that you would deserve now, they have to talk with each other and, and actually preferably even more than two. You would have a team of people that together say, we we know enough of this learner that we can um that we can make that decision based on what we know and what we find in our portfolio or whatever information is well documented about you so that that takes a little bit away of the uh, the the variation between supervisors you don't hope that that whole team will be only junior supervisors, only senior supervisors, but a mix of those people. That's what you hope, really. Uh, and then uh, yeah, that that's one source of variation. Now, if you think of those ad hoc decisions, why would a supervisor today say, well, let you do this and maybe tomorrow not? That could be that today's patient is not as complex as tomorrow's patient. So, so those, yeah, those variations. I, I recognize there's literature. Uh, we have literature publications. I did a summary, a study once. Actually, I was involved in a study that also shows that variation. But that's the reason why why you actually need really need those clinical competency committees. I know through this, you've mentioned that there, especially in the beginning, were some criticisms. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what are the criticisms of this type of system and um how those in your opinion if they're valid or been disproven or what are kind of the harder parts of it so there's different sorts of criticism if you look at the literature you're going to also find criticism so criticism on uh on competencies uh, is different from criticism for epas there's some overlap but competencies there were if you look at the, uh, the literature there people would say competencies are too artificial they uh, don't describe a person well and they don't take into account like the the uh, less tangible uh, aspects like identity formation or they look at very so that is um, too reductionist is what that that part of criticism is other criticism uh would be uh more like practical criticism in for instance time variability we didn't talk about that but the idea actually is if you are serious about only qualifying persons when you know that for all epas or all, all critical objectives people really meet standards then you might um not want to graduate people at the end of three years or four years or however long it is independent of how they are so that's actually uh one one of the i would, I would say one of the criticisms of cbme over the previous phase but now if you say well we need those people who need more time should have actually more time 
or we might even offer uh, others who are pretty fast and actually very proficient in their development um, something that they could earlier finish the program if they uh, so that variability in time is difficult to organize so that would be criticism for some people we can't organize that well i think there's ways around that um and yeah there's there's examples that things that i can show or talk about but i think that would if you're asking for types of criticism then there is the criticism in general that there is a pressure too much pressure on being observed enough and there's also a sense of thinking if i have been signed off for enough epas then uh, i i can progress to a next stage and the and the uh, little bit odd way of thinking is it so the the principle of using epas means that if you are qualified to do things with less supervision you keep on doing that with less supervision but you're now formally actually in a better position a more autonomous position whereas sometimes i hear those programs say well as soon as you have enough observations you can leave that epa behind and do something different which it's actually and then they see it as the 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 closure of something and then it becomes a little bit of a tick box exercise enough um enough checks and then your epa requirements have been um sufficiently done that is actually not the deeper principle of entrustment the entrustment is actually a stepwise increase of autonomy over time so that you get more and more autonomy uh, so uh, i think and that criticism uh, so it's actually voiced like it is a burden too much of a burden um and um and the burden is felt because the benefit of being really trusted is not not always operationalized and then finally maybe something like um how in cbme do we account for individual differences of individuality and uh, and that is it's very interesting i've been lately uh, thinking about that a lot so i have proposed in in a journal article in medical education that we think of medical competence um, in a different way in thinking of competence is as a layered model of three three layers and the layer one would be the canonical knowledge and skills that everybody must master then the contextual competence is the ability to to work in a compass to to apply in a context all those uh, knowledge that all that knowledge and skills and you have to interact with people here's where epas become um become important because here's where entrustment comes along then the third layer would be the personalized layer the personalized competence is actually competence that is not so much meeting standards that are set by other people but it is actually the competence that you develop beyond the thresholds of permission to practice so here's where your individual interests and your individual strengths actually are more exploited and developed um, and that can go on until your retirement i mean you can keep on developing getting better and better and things and uh, actually help yeah and and move yourself forward and move the profession forward uh, but that's very individual and those individuals we have to realize that everybody is different and the, i i when i look at you it's not only your like your physical appearance is not identical but what's in your head is not identical and that's just fine i mean as long as you meet the standards 
that we think are important for medicine, I I should value or we should value all your individual differences too. And no matter where you come from, what your color is, what your length is, what your gender is, what whatever. And and it's not so much, I'm not advocating it's not like it, it it aligns with the discussion of diversity and inclusion. That's important too, but it is even more than specific groups. It's everybody is different. It's all individual. So that is a layer of competence that is important that we want to stimulate, but we cannot, we should not call that, I mean, we should not link that to standards that hold for everyone. Because that's a little bit in a paradox with the idea of personalized competence. Anyway, so it is a little bit of a of a glimpse of a direction of of my thinking, and um, yeah, yeah, I find that idea really interesting. Because as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how one time I brought up on rounds that competency competency based like learning is an interesting concept, and I immediately was met with the resistance of, well, you just need to get the reps, you need to get the reps. And like see this patient however many times, which I get that. But at the same time, I don't know if a time-based model is causes us to get more reps. Cause I definitely know that like in my own personal like experiences, maybe I've seen a ton of cirrhotics and managed cirrhosis a million times, but have I seen that many like heart attacks? And I think just based on chance of what you're managing, uh, as opposed to if competency, someone was like, oh, you've seen this much cirrhosis, you're competent at that, but you need to see more of like the heart attacks to learn how to manage those rather than just like, oh, three years time, you're going to get enough reps and then you're good to go. So I think that's interesting. And I guess one question that that leads me to is, do you think we need to redefine how we're giving feedback to trainees uh, to make sure that it's not uh, like personality based and it's more about like and not like be do st- like my style of this handling of this medical condition, but rather more objective uh, feedback given to people so that they could be marked as comp- competent on a skill? Uh, yes, and I wouldn't say uh, that is. Um, I, I wouldn't call that a complete re- redefinition of feedback, because I think there are quite a number of people who really recognize that uh, we, we have always struggled with the idea of feedback. It's not very easy to give feedback, but and 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 I think you're rightly complaining of feedback if you have people who would say, "Well, you're doing well," or you, or or giving feedback that is not really specific or and it's not really helpful. Uh, or it is directed towards something that you are not changing because it's part of your personality or it, it so that is not the type of feedback that you that that you deserve and and it's not not helpful so feedback should be something that is truly focused on on getting you at a higher level and um but the funny thing is if you so if you have medical students uh, that do you have medical students that who are doing like clerkships in your environment and you're asked to be providing feedback i i i know that people would say well i really want to have very specific and good feedback but once i have to give it myself i find that it's not always easy to do that so uh, so we we have to also find smart ways for faculty development to for for supervisors to know which 
and which type of feedback is most useful at which moment. Um, some people kind of naturally do that well, but others really need to be trained actually in doing that. And and everybody actually knows, but that it's not very helpful to just say, um, go on or read more or whatever. <laughs> it's definitely a hard thing that I think I see a lot of people do well and a lot of people are still growing in their style of it. Um, but I agree that the feedback should be actionable and more based on skills rather than personality because that's hard. <laughs> yeah, so a feedback yeah, feedback providers who really have some sort of interest in you and, and know what you're doing. And while they're watching, they should be thinking, what am I going to give as a feedback? If you don't do that well, and like in hindsight, it's usually difficult to provide specific feedback because you kind of forget get what you observed or not it's it yeah the longer it takes before you get feedback the more yeah useless it becomes yeah yes so i want to be mindful of your time here but i think um kind of like a quick last question i'd love to hear a little bit about what the future of this model holds, especially in the United States, if there's more of a push towards using this more competency-based assessment um, here, because I know nationally, as you said, it's used in lots of different places. Yeah, so if you, uh, if your question is about entrustment decision-making, uh, then I, I think we're, as far as I can observe now, it's only increasing. The the interest is increasing in doing that more and better too. So I um, organized an international course uh, for scholars and, and and educators about EPAs, and and we feel that many people really start getting to know to understand the concept more deeply, and and I think then then it uh, will will definitely sticking will be applied more and more and better and better, I hope. Well, we re really appreciate you coming on the show. I think this is a lot of food for thought because it is such a, in some ways, a different model than what we're used to. So thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about this. Yeah, it's my pleasure to do that with you. Thank you for inviting me. And that's a wrap. Check out our show notes and follow us on MedX and Instagram to get the most up-to-date information on what the ROS podcast crew is up to. Thanks to our executive producer, Bijan Sadie, for all that he does. And with that, I'd say a 14-point review of systems is complete. Unless otherwise saved in the HPI. Thanks, Thanks. for listening. Bye. Uh, happy holidays. <laughs>